I want to ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew, the 27th chapter. Matthew, the 27th chapter. And we will be reading towards the end of this message from that passage. You can use your smartphone as well. Go to the Bible app on your smartphone if you have it. If you don't have it, you can download it very quickly. It's for free. I read from the ESV, the English Standard Version. And we'll be reading again later on in the service. So don't stress about finding it too quickly. Matthew 27. I want to talk to you about somebody who is probably most often forgotten about these events 2,000 years ago, during the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Um, I've titled this message, The Man Who Missed His Cross. The Man Who Missed His Cross. Amazingly, this man is mentioned in all four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell four stories, four accounts of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. In all four accounts, this man makes elite company in that he is mentioned in every single one. That can't be said of many people. That can't be said of Lazarus and, and people like, like, like them. But it is said about him. Like you have Jesus mentioned in all four, of course. You have Mary Joseph mentioned in all four. You have the disciples mentioned in all four. And this notorious guy who doesn't really belong with that elite company is there. Why? He was a hero to some, and he was a villain to others in his day. He was well-known in his generation. He was condemned to die and should have been crucified, but Jesus took his place. And if his life had not intersected with Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, nobody would know the name Barabbas. But today, we remember him as the man who missed his cross. So who is Barabbas, though? I mean, I asked this question of our staff here, and they answered the question in a typical way, and I expect this from most people who you ask us, who's Barabbas? And, and most people would say, isn't he the guy that the crowd chose to be released over Jesus? And yes, yes, that's his story, but there's so much more. And so I want to look at the four accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I want to see what they say about this man, and then we'll, we'll end in Matthew's gospel and read the whole account. First off, here's what John says. John 18 verse 40 says, Barabbas was a robber. Barabbas was a robber. Now the Greek word for robber here is listes. It's, it's a different word than just your average ordinary thief. Uh, the word is used in Mark's gospel to describe the two men that are crucified with Jesus. They were called listes. They were called robbers as well. You know, he was, he was crucified between two thieves. But these guys were more like bandits. The word means actually bandit. They were Robin Hood type figures. Robin Hood type figures. They robbed from the rich and they gave to the poor. Now, if we think in this generation that income equality, inequality, income inequality is a problem in this generation, in first century Jerusalem, it was a huge problem. Most people were dirt poor, dirt poor. And only a few select of the aristocracy and the nobility and the Pharisees and the Sadducees had money, had means. And they were very select, very uh, sectarian group. And so to the poor people, Barabbas and his ilk were heroes. But to the rich and the aristocracy, they were villains. They were criminals. This probably explains why the crowd was so willingly tur turned on Jesus and chose Barabbas. Because he would fight for them. He would defeat the dreaded Romans. He would, he would do whatever it took to deliver them from their 
estate and life. He was a robber. Mark gives us even more information about Barabbas. Mark 15, verse 7 says this. Among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. So now we know he's not just a thief and not just a bandit. He's a murderer. He's killed people. And notice the definite article before the word insurrection. The insurrection. This was not just some average ordinary insurrection. This was like the notable event that disrupted the city. People knew enough about this event for Mark to make sure we understood he was involved in the insurrection. You could kind of relate it to the marathon bombings of last year. We know about that's a national issue or 9-11. It's a national issue. It's on our conscience. We know it. We, we can recall it on the moment. This man was well known. He was a murderer, not just a robber and, and, and an insurrectionist. Matthew tells us a little bit more. Matthew, and, and actually Luke says the same thing. Uh, Matthew 27 verse 16 says, a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Notorious in the Greek here means to put a mark on. That means that you could say he was a marked man. He was a marked individual. That there was probably some people who were out to get him. That he was well known among the people. When, when Pilate asks who they want to be released, uh, most of the crowd has no problem saying his name. They are aware. He's a famous criminal. There is some history behind this. Some believe that he was the son of a notable rabbi and that the rabbi was very famous in his day, but his son went bad and committed murder and went the other way. And so he was notable. Today you could compare him to maybe O.J. Simpson or Joe Karsanayev. We know his name. That's who he is. That's who Barabbas was. But what the text doesn't tell us is what his name does tell us. His name is very interesting, and, and you have to see it from other passages of scriptures. Uh, his name is Barabbas, but you would say it like this, Bar-Abbas. It's a two-part name. The first part, Bar, that we learn from other passages of scripture means son of. It means son of. When Jesus sees Simon Peter, he says, you are Simon Bar-Jonah meaning Simon, son of John. Your last name usually in those days was son of someone else. And so this is his last name, Bar, son of, and then Abba. Bar, son of. And most of you know from Romans chapter 8, some of you will know your Bibles pretty well. Abba means what? Abba means father. And notice the plural, Bar Abbas. Not the son of the father, but the son of fathers. The son of the fathers. And I share this to tell you that here's why I believe that Barabbas is in all four accounts. Here's why the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, made sure to, remember, to remind us that this is who Jesus sacrificed for. This is who, who, was, who Jesus took the place of. Barabbas, the sons of the fathers. Because they're telling us in a subtle way that Barabbas is us. And we are Barabbas. We are the fallen sons and daughters of the fathers. 
You're Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. Real quick question, just to prove my point. Real quick question, easy question, okay? So raise your hand if this is true for you. How many of you have, have had a biological father? Okay, everybody's hand should be up. Just, you're scaring me. Some of you are scaring me. You maybe missed health class that day. You have one. I mean, they're doing crazy things with test tubes nowadays, but we don't know if that's true yet. But... Every single one of us, I don't know if your dad was absent or there or whatever. That's not, the, that's not the question. The question is, were you produced by a father? Yes. And so Barabbas is us. So what have we learned from Barabbas so far that we can apply to us? What is the gospel trying to teach us through Barabbas in this moment? Quick review. Number one, Barabbas was bad. <laughs> Somebody say bad. Barabbas was a bad man. And here's what the gospel writers are telling us. So are you. You're bad. I'm bad. It's so freeing to say that in church. I'm not just bad. I'm very bad. You don't know me. I know me. I know we can put the church face on. We can put the work face on. We can put the school face on. But deep inside, where nobody sees us except those very close to us, you know it. I know it. We're bad. And I'm very bad, and I'm the preacher. (laughs) Which automatically makes all of you worse than me. (laughs) I don't make the rules. I just abide by them. You're bad. This is what the gospel confronts us with first. The gospel first confronts us with the fact that nobody makes it. Nobody adds up to what God expects. In fact, the Bible says the exact opposite. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23, it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. Sin means to miss the mark. Sin means to go beyond the bounds. Uh, that's what sin means in the Bible We've missed the mark. We've fallen short of the glory of God. I'm bad. You're bad. And yet we spend most of our lives trying to justify ourselves. Oh, the things that we'll do. We'll we'll put on makeup and dress up and look nice and play the part, but ultimately we know deep down inside of our hearts there's a whole lot of bad there. And then we like to justify ourselves with what we get and what we earn and what we have. I have a master's degree. You're still bad. I went to Sunday school. You're still bad. In fact, some of the worst people I know (laughs) come from my Sunday school days. But I have a good family, and my kids are obedient, and my boy's a Cub Scout, and, and my wife is president of the PTA. You're still bad. You're still bad, and we try all our lives to justify ourselves. Let me prove one of the ways that we try to justify ourselves. Uh, Parents of more than one child. Parents of more than one child. Let me ask you a question. Don't answer out loud because I already know the answer. Which child are you the hardest on? I know which one. The one that's most like you. You know why you're hardest on the one that's most like you? Because they show you you from the outside of you. And you thought, you see, you thought you were all that. But then you see you coming out and you see it from the outside. And you're like, I don't like me. Stop. 
copying me immediately, right? What are we trying to do? We're trying to justify ourselves. We're trying to cover up what we don't want to be seen. We're just like Adam and Eve. They ate the tree. They jumped in the bushes. Hiding our badness. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There is none, none who is righteous. Ecclesiastes 7.20. There's none. This is what the Bible confronts us with. And never sins. Nobody never sins. You know, the Bible answers one of the most profoundly difficult questions Americans keep asking in a very simple way. One of the most difficult questions we all have is this question. You can finish the second half of the question for me. Why do bad things happen to good people? You know what the Bible says to that? There are no good people. Very simple. Anything good that happens to you is by the grace of God. We have fallen short. Barabbas was bad. I'm bad. You're bad. Second thing we know about Barabbas, Barabbas was worse than we thought. (laughs) Some of you know where I'm going with this. So are you. You're worse than you thought. Here's what we like to do. We like to grade our morality on the curve. And so we'll say, well, I know I'm bad, Pastor, but I'm not as bad as that person over there. This is what keeps us addicted to reality television. Because reality television shows us other people being very bad. And it helps me feel better about myself. Because I'm not that guy lying, cheating, stealing on the television show. Thank God I'm not as bad as that guy. So when I get to heaven, I'll say, yeah, sure, God, I messed up, but I didn't mess up much, as much as that guy over there. And Jesus talks about this. He talks about this in in Luke chapter 18. He says that that two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee who went to church and tithed and did all the right things and, and said all the right things and looked all the right ways. And the other was a tax collector. And I always feel bad for tax collectors in the Gospels because tax collectors had their own special designation of bad. You ever notice this? Every time the Bible mentions who was around Jesus, it says, and tax sinners and tax collectors were around Jesus. It's like they had their own little designation of nasty. They were just really bad people. And the tax collector is praying, and the Pharisee's praying, and the Pharisee says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I thank you that I tithe, I fast, I pray, I go to church, I got a lot of Bible memorized, and I thank you most of all that I'm not like this pathetic tax collector. I'm not like him. Grading himself on the curve. And then the tax collector can't even lift his head to heaven. He beats his breast and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says a profoundly shocking statement. He says, the tax collector, not the Pharisee, went home justified. And how the people must have just thought, what? Because we want to grade ourselves on the curve. Here's what Jesus says. You're worse than you thought. You're worse than you thought. Happy Easter. You're worse than you thought. (laughs) Here's what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, verse 21. And just see if any of these apply to you. He says, out of the heart of man... Out of the heart of men, not from the television, not from the public schools, you know, out of the heart of men come evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, 
sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Did I hit everybody on that list? Because I'm pretty sure I did. That's, that pretty much covers all of us. Worse than we thought. And what else do we learn about Barabbas? Barabbas was condemned to suffer and die. Number three. He was bad. He was worse than than we thought. And he was condemned. The sentence had been passed. Death was inevitable. And he was going to pay for his wrongdoing. And so are you. And so am I. Left to ourselves, we are condemned to suffer and die and pay the penalty for what we have done against Almighty God. Every single one of us, every human. Whenever you see injustice and think something must be done about that, I want you to hear me say this clearly. Something will be done about that. God will make perfect justice meet at the final day. We have this intuitive desire for justice. We do. This is why Matthew calls our sins uh, debts. Forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors, right? Because it's a, it's, a, it's a principle about when things are done against you, what do you do? Immediately you feel that that person owes you. Well, you don't know what they did to me, Pastor. Well, you don't know what they said about me. Well, they robbed me out of my inheritance. Well, they turned my father against me. Well, they took the job that I should have had. They did something to me, and now they owe me. This is intuitive. It is built into our DNA. It is because we are made in the image of a just God. Sin incurs a debt, and somebody has to pay the debt. And some of you are holding on to Sins against you from years ago. You're still holding on to what they did. They owe me. They need to come and apologize. They need to show me just how sincere they are about how wrong they understand that they were. You're holding all these things against people. And if you're in Christ, you just don't have a right to do that. Because in the gospel story, Jesus paid that debt for us. Someone owes God a huge debt. We all do. We all are condemned to suffer and die. Barabbas is us. And we are Barabbas. This is the the story from the Garden of Eden, by the way, right? The Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they have it perfect. They have everything they could ever want, ever need, ever desire. No sin, no shame, no crying, no pain, no anxiety, no stress, no Monday morning uh, feeling of, of, oh, it's Monday. Nothing like that. They're excited every single day in the presence of God. One rule. One. Do not eat that tree. And what did God say about it? The day that you eat that tree is the day that you die. Ezekiel 18, verse 4, the soul that sins is the soul that dies. Not the soul that sins is the soul that shall go to rehab and sin in different ways. 
Not the soul that sins shall try to pick themselves up by their bootstraps and try to do better the next time. Not the soul that sins is going to get a few couple extra chances. No, the soul that sins shall die. One rule. Don't eat the tree. And just like the kid that you tell not to eat the cookie that's on the tray, it's like tractor beam. Right to the tree. And they eat, and they see, and they're shameful, and they jump and hide in the bushes. And God comes and seeks them out. Where are you? He knew where they were. He's trying to show us who he is. He's the God who finds sinful people. And when he finds them, he doesn't kill them. Though justice demands they die, he doesn't kill them. He takes an innocent animal that did not sin, kills that animal, takes its skin, wraps it around them, and sends them off. And there is the gospel portrayed right in Genesis chapter 3. And the narrative of the Bible goes like that for the rest of the story. Here's the narrative of the Bible. Here's what it is. Before you get to thou shalt and thou shalt nots and what you should do and what you shouldn't do and trying to be nice to your neighbor and trying to be a good person, before you get to any of that stuff, here's the narrative of the Bible. The narrative of the Bible is this. We keep screwing it up and God keeps rescuing us. He rescues Adam and Eve. Even Cain. Cain kills his brother. What does God do? He says, I saw what you did. I'm going to put a mark on you so that nobody kills you. Merciful. And then Abraham. Father Abraham. Right? We used to sing his song. Right arm, left arm, right? Spin around, sit down. Father Abraham sold his wife out twice to save his own skin. Twice. How would that work out for any of you husbands? And God intervenes with the king that he sold his wife out to and makes sure that they don't defile his wife. God rescues and saves. And Isaac, his precious promised son, does the same thing with his wife and God intervenes and saves him. And Jacob, Jacob is in the womb messing it up fighting with his brother. When he comes out of the womb, he's grasping his heel. Then he connives his brother out of his birthright. Then he steals the old man's blessing and he takes advantage of his blindness. And then he runs for the hills and God finds him and rescues him. God rescues forsaken sinners all throughout the Bible. And then you have David who blows it and God rescues him. And then you have Jonah, the mayor of the screw-ups, runs from God jumps in a boat, tells the guys in the storm, throw me overboard. I know this is because my God's anger with me. I want to die. They throw him overboard. The whale swallows him, and God says, I refuse to let you go. I'm going to rescue you from this whale and save you from my purposes. This is the narrative of the Bible. This is the God that I serve, the God who rescues and saves sinners who don't have a chance without him. And no one... And no one, no one experienced this more personally and more profoundly than Barabbas. Barabbas, the sinful son of the fathers, was substituted for by the perfect son of the father. And so I want to read the scripture with you. And then we're going to act it out. And I'm going to ask you to play along. 
and you don't have a choice anymore because you can't leave. <laughs> Matthew chapter 27, verse 15. It says, Now at the, feast, at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides that, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor said again to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Now I want to have some fun with you this morning. We're going to act this out. I'll be Pilate, and you'll be the crowd, for obvious reasons. And we're going to put your lines up here on the screen so you can't possibly forget. Now remember, you're an angry crowd. I know it's Easter, I know spring is here, but just pretend to be angry for me. Show me your angry face. Very good, okay. <laughs> Are you ready? All right, and I gotta take the mic off because this is first century Jerusalem, they don't have microphones, so. Which of the two do you want me to release for you? Christ. Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? Let him be crucified. Why? What evil has he done? Let him be crucified. Very good. There's a reason why I asked you to do that. The reason is because most of the Jesus movies that you have ever watched depict this scene wrong. In most of the Jesus movies, you have Jesus here, Pilate here, Barabbas here, and the crowd there. And that's not what the Gospels tell us actually happened. The Gospels tell us that Barabbas was not there. He was already imprisoned. He was already locked up. He was already in jail awaiting execution. His sentence has been passed, and it was just a matter of time. I want to show you where most people, most historians, believe that he was, according to a first century map of Jerusalem. According to archaeological studies, right up here in the north part of the city is the fortress of Antonia. And that is most likely where Barabbas would have been staying, locked up and awaiting execution. Down here in the south part or central part of the city is Herod Antipas's palace. In John chapter 19, John says that Pilate held court on the stone pavement. The stone pavement has been found. It's right about there where Herod Antipas's palace would have been. That's where the crowd outside would have been yelling for Barabbas to be released and Jesus to be crucified. Now on the next slide, I want to show you that the distance between Antonia Fortress and Herod's Palace is about 0.5 miles. Why am I telling you this? Because the average human voice outside, one voice, cannot travel 0.5 miles and reach the Antonia Fortress. On the best of conditions, it can't happen. The average human voice can go about half that distance. So Pilate's voice, what we just did, went about this far, and Barabbas never would have heard Pilate's voice. But the crowd's voice would have made it all the way. 
Because we all know from football games and baseball games that crowd voices can travel much farther than individual voices. So back to our lines. Barabbas is sitting in a cell. He doesn't know when his day is going to come. He could be crucified tomorrow, today, next week, next month, next year. There was no true judicial process like we have today. There were no appeals. And he's sitting cold and alone in the dark cell of that fortress. And he doesn't hear Pilate's voice, but he hears the crowd's voice. Do you remember your lines? Your first line was, Barabbas. And your second line was, let him be crucified. And your third line was, let him be crucified. And very subtly, Matthew is showing us what Barabbas experienced that day. And I imagine that when he heard the roar of that crowd from a half a mile away, his heart began to beat. He would have been marched through that crowd They would have pulled on his beard. They would have spit on him. They would have punched him in the face. They would have mocked him and kicked him all the way to the cross. His hands right through his wrists would have been nailed to that wood. His feet nailed to that wood. He would have been hung there, suspended to die for up to six days. The most gruesome, torturous death imaginable was soon to be his. Justly. And the door opens to the fortress, and he hears the Roman centurion's feet coming down the hall, closer and closer to his cell. Opens the cell. The Roman centurion, Barabbas, let's go. He stands up. I imagine he can't lift his head. He knows what's coming, the pain, the torture, the humiliation. Walks through the corridor with the Roman centurion. They're two feet along the pathway. The Roman centurion opens the final door to the outside. His last glimpse of freedom, his last glimpse of sunlight. And the Roman centurion amazingly and astonishingly turns to Barabbas and says, Barabbas, you are free to go. Jesus Christ has taken your place. What did he do? What would you have done? Did he fall to his knees in in gratitude? Did he jump for joy? Did he go to the cross at least? I mean, some historians think he went to the cross. We don't know for sure. What would you have done? I'm sure I would have gone to the cross. I would have at least wanted to see who took my place. His two friends hanging on each side. And there, someone else died in his place. And we don't know what Barabbas had done. We don't know how he lived his life from that moment forward. We don't know. And the Bible doesn't tell us. And history doesn't tell us. He disappears from the pages of human history from that moment forward. And the thing is, we don't have to know what Barabbas did. We have to answer the question, what are we going to do? And the definition of your life is not how much education you have. Or how pretty you are. Or how smart you are. Or what family you come from. Or how much money you have. The definition of every human being's life in the history of humanity is what are you going to do 
with the death of Jesus Christ for you. This is the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. That the gospel first confronts us and says, you're bad, you're worse than you think, and you deserve to die. But Jesus, but for Jesus stepping in your place. Theologians call it substitutionary atonement. He's our substitutionary sacrifice. This is the gospel. The gospel is not, listen, Easter Sunday, resurrection weekend. This is not about how you can get knocked down in life, but you can come back stronger afterwards. No. And the gospel message is not about trying harder to do better and try better and be a better person. No. And the gospel message is not memorize the Bible and go to Sunday school and do all those nice things for other people. And the gospel isn't even the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's not the gospel. Here's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus Christ takes my place at the cross and dies my death and I am set free. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And, and you, can, you can go to church your whole life and not catch this. I've seen it happen. You can be baptized as an infant, go to all the catechisms and all the Sunday schools and never catch this personally for you. To have your heart warmed and stirred by the fact that freedom has come to you because death came to Jesus. That's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Notice the differentiation. Chastisement, punishment, torture, pain, freedom, peace. And here's what he says. All we like, uh, I'm sorry. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He took our place. Jesus took your place. Barabbas isn't the only man who missed his cross. So did we. Why? Because God loves us. John 15, verse 13. Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Romans 5, verse 8. God showed his great love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, we will he will certainly save us. He will certainly save us from what? From God's just and righteous condemnation. This is the gospel. It levels the playing field, and it opens the door for anyone who would come. This is why the old hymn writer says it like this. Before the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is count because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me died in my place. And I want, I, want, I want to make one last thing crystal clear. Crystal clear. All of this means nothing if you don't receive it. You have to receive it. 
you have to say, yes, I receive Christ's death in my life, for my life, so that I can receive his resurrection life in me.